1970, a group of women from the National Organization for Women ferried across the water to the Statue of Liberty with fabric hidden underneath their dresses. They had it bunched up over their stomachs to make them look like this massive contingency of pregnant women. Then, when they got to the statue, they climbed up and put the fabric together, draping it over the railing to form a gigantic banner. It read, Women of the World Unite. They proceeded to take over the monument, singing, playing guitar, dancing, doing a kick line, all until the police were finally called. Now, this demonstration from 1970 was led by the great Ivy Botini, who I was incredibly sad to learn died just a few days ago. She was 94 years old. And over the course of those 94 years, Ivy had a truly brilliant career of service. She got her start working with Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan in the 60s. She helped found the first chapter of the National Organization for Women. She was a core part of their leadership team until she was kicked out of the movement for being a lesbian. But true to her character, she did not let this stop her. Ivy promptly moved to Los Angeles and joined the fight for LGBTQ rights. It is there in Los Angeles where I got to know Ivy. She was living in West Hollywood, right down the street from me, it turned out. So one day, I walked over, rang her doorbell, and she invited me inside. I spent a few afternoons there with her, going through stacks of paintings she'd made, hearing stories, and yes, one day I brought my mic to record. So this interview that you're about to hear is from January of 2019. It originally aired on the Luminary app, and I wanted to re-air it now to celebrate the life of a trailblazer. Someone who fought and advocated to make the world a better, safer place until the very end. From The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on the podcast, we're celebrating the life and legacy of Ivy Botini. So you got your start fighting for women's rights in the 60s and have been a lifelong activist ever since. I was surprised to learn that you initially joined the movement quite by accident. You followed a girl. Yes. <laughs> and so you could have very easily have gone home after that night and never thought of it again, but something obviously grabbed you at that meeting. Did you know right away? Well, it wasn't a meeting meeting. Oh, what was it? But it was a get-together uh, of Betty Fidan, uh, Muriel Fox, T. Grace Atkinson, and Flo Kennedy. I I hadn't come out out out. I was struggling. I I was trying to figure out who I was. I was still um, living with my husband and my children, and so to to just put icing on the cake so nobody would think that I was a lesbian or at least struggling with the question. I went out and I bought, this is crazy, I bought a hat, this kind of hat, blue with white polka dots, and I had, I bought gloves to match. And I went to the meeting also with my oldest daughter who was like 13, 14 at the time, because I figured, you know, they're never going to think I'm struggling here if I have a child with me. I don't remember one word of what we talked about, but I got to watch Betty Friedan's energy and watching their, how they composed themselves and presented themselves. Me and my polka dot hat. <laughs> God, 
Oh, no. And that, that was my first encounter with the National Organization for Women. Wow. So Betty Friedan famously wrote The Feminine Mystique, which was a massive book and is credited for starting the second wave of feminism in America. Had you read the book? Uh, No, I never read it. But I recognized very early uh, in the response that book had gotten that this was Betty Friedan had touched uh, a nerve. I I was uh, pretty stunned at how radical some women who came in very early into what were, what became the women's movement that they they got what that book was about and when you were forced out there was i think you called it a lesbian purge what was the argument against lesbians being in the movement that we would kill the women's movement because of the subject matter People would be disgusted, angry, withdraw support, and that the women's movement would would be stopped. That was Betty Friedan's image in her head. One protest took place at the Statue of Liberty. Y'all hung the uh, the sign that said "Women of the World Unite." Yes, on the pe- top of the pedestal. On the top. That's a pretty crazy story. <laughs> Do you mind just telling like the brief highlights of it? Um, these two lesbians decided they were going to blow up a statue in Queens called Civic Virtue because it was of this male Greek goddess, bare-chested, loincloth, clothed, and he had a spear, and the the point part, points part, was around a woman's neck, and she, and and so the person had. The serpent had the head of a woman, and they they were going to blow it up because it was called civic virtue. So I suggested that that was small potatoes, that we should do something big. Let's take over the Statue of Liberty, never giving one thought that it would happen. Oh, you proposed it because it was so outrageous. Yes, because I, I figured it'll never happen and they will forget that they wanted to blow up the statue. They might have done that. And what was the response? Three poli- police boats arrived and two fireboats. And I thought for sure that we were all going to be arrested and go to the federal pen. And the police arrived and the captain of the middle one, stepped off onto the wharf and with a bullhorn yelled up to me, what are you women doing up there? So I said, so I, I, when he said, what are you doing? I, I said, oh, we're just walking and singing and playing guitars, blah, blah, blah. And he said, how long do you think you'll be? I said, oh, maybe, maybe a half hour. I'm being very demure. And he said, um, okay, um, I'll be right here waiting for you to finish. And I yelled down to him, and I'll be right here doing what I'm doing. And that's what happened. It must have been another 20 minutes at least. And all the women congregated again, and we walked down the steps to the wharf, and the boats started to come in to the passenger boats. And we got on two different boats and we went home. And nobody was arrested. 
Nobody was arrested. Oh, but the, the, the finish of the demonstration was the, the police boats decided to join in our protest, I guess, because they turned on their siren, whoop, 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 whoop. And the, the fire boats had, each boat had a water cannon, cannon, these big water cannons. And they started to shoot the water cannons up in the air. Whoosh, whoosh, whoop, 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 whoosh, whoosh. It was a party. So that is so surprising to me that they more or less joined the celebration. Yeah. Was that surprising at the time? I was absolutely stunned. I thought, oh, they do have a heart. Like they were supporting us in some way. I want to talk about sexuality for a second, because you said that you didn't know that being a lesbian was an option, that you just didn't know that relationships could have anything but a man and a woman. And yet you also had crushes on women throughout your life. Oh, from the time I was in kindergarten, I started by a major crush on our gym teacher when I was in kindergarten, <laughs> Miss Rose. She could whistle through her teeth. Oh, my God. I think crushes on gym teachers is like a defining part of the lesbian experience. (laughs) Still. (laughs) Oh, um, Margie Adams, um, a songwriter in the movement, wrote Ode to a Gym Teacher. That was very popular in the lesbian community for a long time. Ode to a Gym Teacher. Great song. How does it go? I don't remember. I just remember that. But That's it was funny. All about wonderful women, gym teachers, you know, blah. She had muscles rippling. Like, you know, I'm I'm just making this up. But it was that kind of a song. So if you're having crushes on women, but you also don't know that relationships with women are an option, like how were you interpreting those feelings? Very painfully. Extremely painful. It was an agonizing time in my life. Because not only were they having these feelings, but I had two girls and the husband that my feelings for exploring my, my true self was so painful. It's probably just about the worst thing that happened to me along the way. The feelings that I had. And, I'm fighting. My identity is fighting two identities. And it, it, was, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible time. I, I love to drive. And when this was going on, I would normally have pushed through the 31st Street tunnel into New York, but there were days that when I was going into New York, I couldn't. I could not go in that tunnel. It was, I was terrified to go in the tunnel or cross bridges, ride elevators, and I. I did that all my life. It was whatever was enclosed. If I entered into it, I'm just thinking about that now. It triggered that. My life was enclosed, and I didn't know what to do. It was a horrible, horrible time. And so did those feelings go away when you started to live more openly? Not until I finally made the choice that I will embrace the fact that I'm a lesbian. Um, How old were you? God, I I think the early 50s, late 40s. 
You know, I honestly don't know. It was right around there. I asked just, it's such a long time to be in that much agony. And I, I know that times were different and you like risked everything if you were out at, at that time, but it's just daily agony. It, it, it's a lot. <laughs> I knew I loved women all along growing up. That was clear to me. But I, I didn't know that it could be a choice because I didn't know there were really other lesbians that felt the same way I did. I know that sounds simplistic, but that really is. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound simplistic at all. I mean, who were, there were no other lesbians in the, in the media publicly, right? Yeah, no, I, I knew no one. And because Dolores wasn't a lesbian. I was just madly in love with her for years and wow. years and years, even though my life progressed and and I got involved with other women, my caring for Dolores never changed. Did you ever tell Dolores that? Not in those words, but one night we were driving into New York and she was in her little beetle bug. And we, we had just gone through the Midtown Tunnel. I started singing, um, you don't have to say you love me, just be close at hand. I started singing that song and, and she, without looking at me, said, I know what you're doing. I was so stunned. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't say, and I stopped singing. I didn't say a word. Didn't say a word. But I didn't know what to do with what she said. I didn't know whether to say, how do you feel about me? Or, oh, no, no, what you're thinking. What are you thinking? No, no, no. I didn't know what to do with it. Do you remember your first kiss with a woman? I'm trying to think who it was. Yes, I do. I had finally gotten a friend of mine who who was on my basketball team, the Royal Lambs, I coached the basketball team. After, obviously, after I graduated from high school and even art school, one night I said to one of the players, you know, take me to a gay bar. Now, that was a big, big request for me. I mean, it was acknowledging that I wanted to participate or see if there was a place for me, and I ended up uh, dating a woman that I saw at the bar a couple of nights later when I went back by myself. And Nancy, her name was Nancy, or probably still is, uh, Nancy, and uh, that was the first kiss that I ever kissed a woman. What did that feel like to be in your 40s and, or 50s and for the first time? I was thinking, now, am I doing this right? You know, and, and then I thought, well, if I kissed a man and kissed a woman, it's got to be the same kind of kiss. Yeah, I, I like kissing women. And you talk about enjoying sex with women more than man, men, your husband even, and it just strikes me as an unfortunate part of the gay experience for you that you did not enjoy sex until your 40s or 50s even. Well, I didn't know. That's not true. I enjoyed sex with my husband. Oh, yeah. I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're making an assumption. No, we, we had a very healthy sex life. But 
it's hard to explain the whole picture of making love, you know, the, the little flirtations when you're cooking a meal or, you know, that you, that you build up. It's kind of all the same. I, I loved my husband, but it was not who I was. I think that we tend to oversimplify sexuality nowadays when it's not that simple. You know, you're 92 now. Yeah. Are you open to a relationship now? Like, how do you think about it? Yeah, sure. I'm not looking. <laughs> I mean, it would have to come up and hit me in the head because relationships are hard. I finally understood I've had three relationships in my life, you know, over a period of time, each one. Um, Nancy and I never lived together, although, you know, she was in my life a lot. But the next two, uh, we did live together. But I finally understand what happened to my relationships. The movement always came first. And relationships came second. And that doesn't work with a partner. They um, start to resent being second. So you sacrificed romantic relationships for the movement. Did the movement also interfere with your relationship with your kids? Well, yes, because I moved, I moved to the city and they stayed with their dad. I gave, uh, and we both, uh, we gave uh, my daughters a choice where they wanted to stay. And did you want to go with me into the city or do you want to stay with your dad? And my eldest, Laura, chose to go with me into the city. I think she thought it was rather a romantic idea, exciting New York City. And my youngest, Lisa, chose to stay with her dad. And that was the right, that was the right decision for both of them. And, and there it was, you know, weekends. We would get together and talk on the phone. You know, that kind of distance. Yeah. I don't know if this is too personal, but did you have kids because you wanted to be a mother or because it was simply expected of you back then? No, I wanted to. Oh, you did? Yes, absolutely. I wanted to have kids. I asked because there are so many laws that tell women what they can do or not do with their bodies and we're fighting against those, but there are also societal norms and, and uh, societal norms and like stigmas. Oh, yeah, that um, are so often equally as powerful as telling us what to do. I just didn't know how much that had to play. No, that had no nothing in my decision to wanting kids. I think one of the sad ironies of LGBTQ people is that the great unifier of all of us came from AIDS and the AIDS crisis. Yes. And we so often don't hear about a lesbian perspective. So I just wonder what you remember about the early days of the AIDS crisis. There was so much, all the rumors that were flying around, it's because of this, it's because of that, so-and-so has it, no, they don't. I mean, it was, it was maddening. 
and I decided to put a group together that voluntarily would arrive whenever I, you know, said maybe every week, I think it was kind of every week on a Sunday, we would meet in the lobby of the then Gay Center on yeah. Island. All, all we did was share rumors. Share rumors. Well, this is what I heard. and uh, Yeah, but I heard that too. But somebody said that wasn't true. And they said such a, I mean, it was just, it was mayhem. It was just. And so, so was the conversation you were having all, was it all about local things? Or were you, were people communicating with other cities? Like the gay men's health crisis and things going on in New York? Were yes, there, there were. yes, we were. We were. I, I was the one that was going back and forth to New mainly New York, because we were having, you know, conference calls, but mostly we would get together face to face talking about this. And sharing information. Yes. Yes. Wow. There was this straight woman who actually fell in love with somebody with with full-blown AIDS. And she willingly became infected. And a baby when it was born at age and um, and she didn't live to work. It was so sad. It was just so sad. It's a hard story. Yeah. Do you think about your own death? Uh, yes, I do. I, I find death is a big waste of time <laughs> when you could be alive doing something. But um, I'm getting used to the idea um, I really do think it's a waste of time. I, honestly, I swear to God, I do. It makes no sense to me. You know, if if you're a productive human being, why do you have to leave? Well, I guess because eventually there'll be no room for anybody else. I wonder if I'll be scared. I'm legally prepared. I've got my trust and I've got my kids cared for, hopefully. You know, yes, I, you know, I realize it's going to happen. And, and there were days that I go, I'm so tired. I'm just, and then another day I'll go, what, what, why were you thinking about that the other day? That's ridiculous. Just get to work. So it, it's a mixed bag. You mentioned you're a productive person. And as someone who defined themselves by their activism, as you've gotten older, have you had to figure out who you are without that? You mean now? Yeah. What I'm doing now? Yeah, like as you can't be as active. Well, I had to face that the first time in 07 when um, my macular generation had gotten had gotten to the point where I had to give up driving because one day I was driving and suddenly there's a car in front of me that wasn't there one second before. And I turned around, came back, parked my car. Coincidentally, my then partner, Dottie, had totaled her car two days later. So I said, oh, don't worry, come and get mine. You can have my car. So I, I gave her my Chrysler Sebring convertible that I loved. So that was the first time I realized that my independence basically was gone. You know, in one split second. That scares me. Yeah, and, and you know, it's you should be scared. Yeah, because it's a whole everything shifts 
luckily, I, I made a couple of phone calls, and one of my friends who had been with me on several campaigns, they'd give me a lift. Thank you for this. Thank you. She was a big, tough woman, the first to come along that showed me And that is Ivy Botini, who died last week at the age of 94. LGBTQ&A is brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and on Twitter and Instagram, as always, at JeffMasters1. I'll see you next week. Bye.